You're listening to the good. Don't call me Paino. The bad. Absolute. And the rugby. Folded like a deck chair. With Paino, Lord and the Hask. I don't know what that means. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four, would you believe, of The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. It's wonderful to be back with you once again. My name is Alex Payne, and thanks, as always, for your feedback over the course of the last week. We had a lot of fun last week with one of England's greatest front rowers, Sir Jason of Leonard, and the story of the goat and the stone, I think, um, tickled most of you and just emphasised why he is such a good ambassador and such a, a well-regarded man throughout the course of the sport. Talking of front row legends, though, we've got another one of the modern era joining us this week it is the good the bad and the rugby all in one i think encompassed entirely by this show dylan hartley how are you good evening very nice to yeah, have good. you with us we've been given a glimpse of the new mansion and t- tell us where you are tell us what we've been doing we've, we've heard a little bit about it in the in the media but lovely i can see fire and ball colors open fireplace i'm in the green room just the quiet room if i'm honest how are you first of all where, how, how is the house move going where are you at with it all yeah, good. We moved in before lockdown and then we had a baby the same week, the, the week before lockdown. So, so lockdown's been, been good, really. Uh, I was talking to Hask a bit about this, like trying to use momentum or keep busy when you retire. Like I threw myself into a million things. I was running around like a blue ass flyer doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you stop and, you know, now we're coming out of it. It's like, what do I return to do? I didn't quite figure out what I was doing. I was just doing a bit of everything. So now I'm still kind of looking at options and trying to work it out, if I'm honest. Good on you. Hask, you're looking tanned. You've been away. I am tanned. I'm looking a lot more like an albino, which is the bad thing. 2020, by the way, all the albinos don't come knocking on my door. I'm actually okay. My, my lid has gone whiter, so I, it's accentuated the fact that I'm losing it. Other than that, I'm very good, actually. Very excited to have Dylan on. I've got my copy of his book arrived today and I finished my other books, Spot Goes to Circus, exactly the same day. So I've actually started it. I'm uh, four or five pages in and um, I'm very excited that Dylan has come on the show because I've known him since he was a fat little Kiwi at 16 with dyed lid and terrible dress sense. Now he's older and fatter with no lid and recent dress sense. (laughs) So it's, it's sort of like, and also, I knew him when he had a functioning body and now I know him with a broken body and he knew me when I was reasonably broken and, and pretty crap at rugby and uh, I sort of carried on being crap but also got a broken body too. So we're nearly neighbours. We just sort of get on the phone to each other and have a good old bitch. We have a good old yarn over a beer and I'm excited to see what he's got to say and, and as I said, his book's out and it's, it's already causing a furore so I'm excited. We're going to get into that. Do you want to write a reply to that, being a fat little bitch, age 16? And actually, I, I do want to ask you about early impressions of Hass, because um, am I right to say you did finger him at one point? Excuse me? In the eye, isn't that right? I flirted with it. Flirted right. with it. Was that an accident, or was that deliberate, having known him um, since the age of 16? Do you know what? I'll go on record and say it was reckless. Right. I was doing everything I could to remove a body from a ruck. and. Right. I was grabbing any means or place possible to do so. The old bowling ball technique. Did he complain about it at the time or, or was it? No, no, no. I kind of worked it all out why I got a six-month ban after that because um, no one else got a six-month ban for anything near that. But 
I was at a, an England Scotland game. Well, I played in an England Scotland game a few years back, and then uh, is it Jeff Proben? Jeff Blackett. Yes. Jeff Blackett. One of them. They're all the sharks. I call them. He kind of strolled across the room, and I clocked him. I was like, "There's that bloke that gave me that six-month ban." And he walked over to our table, and I was like, "Shit, what's he want? What's he doing there?" And he's gone up to Hask and dropped the the hands on the back of his shoulders, started massaging him, and Hask stood up, and it was like some like old boys Wellingtonian handshake and a hug. And I was like, "Ah, I worked it out right there and then." Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. I mean, to be fair, I knew Jeff, but the other seven people you fingered in the one game had never met him before. So you know, I think that's probably why. But. um yeah, I did think you were a bit harshly done by on that, unfortunately. And actually, I didn't complain at the time to answer your question, Alex. I didn't. I complained about one of the, another teammate who um, of Dills who did almost use pull my eye out of my head. But um, I'll save that story for the for the book. But I'm on his kill list. Dill told me this. I won't mention his name because I don't want to bring it up. But he um, apparently this bomb player has a, a list of like people he's going to is going to get it. And I'm on the top of it. I used to be on Dill's kill list, and now I'm on this other guy's kill list. So, I used to have list. I'm just, I'm just bringing you in. I'm bringing you in. Now, this this guy has actually got a book, and he's he's wrote down names in it. I don't know what he's going to do with those names, all those people, when he kind of gets round to it. But, you know, I'm not like that. I'm just like it's the past, let it go, move on type thing. But this guy's he's holding on to it, and he's a he's a dangerous man. Can I just pick up on the charts because your career has been a, a remarkable journey, but it finished in a glorious position as, as captain of England, which isn't establishment, but it's highly respected and it's, it's hugely sort of powerful within the sport. I'm presuming at this point you've got no real intention of going into the Blazer Brigade and administration and the corridors of power, or am I wrong in that? Do you want to get in there and shake um, it up? Do you know what? I, I don't think my face really ever fit in terms of even just being an, an English player. Um, and because of my disciplinary, I probably um, wasn't, accepted and, and having the wrong accent and those sorts of circles, I, I definitely felt potentially as an out, outsider. And there's little things like, I remember going to, to every England game and I never had my family there with me. My parents were never there because they're always in New Zealand. So I was always just by myself. Even the day I got capped, I was just there by myself and I got capped and you just, just move on. When everyone else has got their parents there and it's all the whole blazer thing. Even at the, with the captaincy thing, I remember doing a, a speech and I'd always been pissed off that Chris Robshaw was kind of given a speech to read out after the game of who he had to, who he had to thank and, and whatnot. And I was like, fuck that. Like, you know, I just want to do it my way and, and get up and just keep it short and sharp. And from, you know, schoolboy rugby, I'd always just learn to, to thank the opposition, thank the referees and, and thank the dinner ladies for putting on the spread. So I just did that. And within t- kind of two weeks of doing the job and doing that, I got a few kind of nods from the boys who said, almost saying like, well done deals of keeping it short and sharp. And then um, one of the council members came up to me, shook my hand. And I went to walk away and like held my hand. And he was like, you need to change what you're saying on the stage. You need to thank the committee members. And I was like, you're taking the piss. And he's like, no, no, you need to thank the committee members who've traveled here to Italy to watch you play. And I was like, you're taking the piss, mate. And then it basically got to a point where I thanked the traveling president maybe to meet halfway, but just being met with that sort of um, that attitude, I suppose, I thought it was quite strange. But yeah, in terms of politics, not really keen for it unless they're going to pay me a whole lot of cash. There's, there's a theme. It, to, to do it, to go fight the good fight and do all that, it's a full-time job. You need to be able to commit time and energy to it. And that's where I feel for the boys with any sort of um, standpoint in the game, 
you know, like they've got training, they've got games, they've got families, they've got to go back and perform. They've got to do all these things. And I listen to your pod and I love Alice's enthusiasm and standpoints, but the end of the day, like he's got to go back and, and play and he can't commit fully to change whether it's right or wrong, you know? But do you think Dill's interesting enough you were so successful as a captain because of what, of that stuff being on your own all the time? Um, I was successful as a captain because we had a good team and we had um, a hell of a boss, you know? I was just a cog within that. And I, I don't think that's got anything to do with me being a loner, so no. No, I just wondered because you and I feel the same way about even though I come from a complete, I come from the blazer, I come from the, the public school, I come from the Silver Spoon, I should ultimately love that and play along with that, but I never have, you know, and I would have done exactly what you, in terms of the speech, is not I would never have been the leader you were, but I would have done that. And I think a lot of players do find it hard, that kind of, you know, tradition is important, heritage is important, but just thanking people for the sake of thanking people, dragging stuff out, being told what to say, don't say anything controversial. You were the first captain that I'd worked under that just didn't tie the party line I just wondered where that had come from whether that was just you or because you felt like your face didn't fit so was it kind of a two, stick your two fingers up at everyone there's a little bit of um we'd both been involved with that team for for 10 odd years and we'd seen it so by the time I'd been chucked into that role I kind of had an idea of how I'd do things and equally when you've got a boss as kind of maverick or strong-willed as Eddie that kind of gave us all confidence, I think, because do you remember we, we tiptoed uh, under Stuart, we tiptoed in the media, we were giving kind of um, hymn sheets to sing off on media day, talk about culture, talk how good it is, how proud you are to play for England, how proud you are of your heritage. And uh, we were told to kind of read these bullet points off and we forgot to talk about winning. And Eddie came and he's like, nah, fuck, fuck all that. Let's just talk about winning and smashing the opposition. And I'm like, what? Like, that's something we've never done before, but actually gave me confidence when I went to media. Of course, we can say we want to win. And we tiptoe around saying we want to win because it's rugby and we're respectful and it's humility. But look, we're playing international sport here. We're doing it to win. And Eddie just started communicating that. And I think, you know, I start talking like that. The whole group starts talking about winning. And it's almost self-fulfilling, that sort of mindset. And that's what I loved about Eddie. He was just so forthright with it. There's so many things to talk to you about. And we may end up dancing around a bit. And forgive us if we do. But you're talking about Eddie. So you described an average day with him as, that was fucking shit, mate. That's fucking shit. You're shit. You shouldn't be here. Which gives me echoes of Don Logan from Sexy Beast. I don't know if you've seen Sexy Beast. But it's, it's quite in the head kind of thing. Now the book is out available in all good retailers, I presume. Am I right in saying you had a cup of coffee with Eddie the other day? And I'm, I'm interested to know how that went. Yeah, good. So obviously I did like my launch. We gave it to, I think the Telegraph had the first kind of dibs on it. But of course, they like pick up on all the juicy headlines of, of some of the Eddie things, the Eddieisms, we'll call them. And um, then he turned up like a day later at my house. And I was like, I just fronted. I was like, shit, have you seen the Telegraph? And he's like, nah, mate. And I'm like, he has, he definitely has, because <laughs> he sees everything. The, he's like the eye of bloody Sauron. He, he sees everything, that man. I just said, look, mate, they're, they're focused on the juicy stuff and they've conveniently left out the, um, the gratitude kind of aspects of the book and, and whatnot. You know, he, he calls it what it is, you know, that, that was shit, but then you go train, he's like, good today, mate, much better. So he, he commands that sort of, that respect. And I think respect's born... For me, it's born from a good place. It's not out of fear. It's just kind of out of a place that he, what he did for me. Uh, he gave me a lot. He gave me a career in, in my view. Because I'd played a, 
a lot of games for England, a bit like Hass. We have anything to show for it. Had a lot of good times, a lot of good memories. But when you, when, you, when you sit where we are now, you look back, you're like, what did you win? Who did you win? Where did you win? What memories did you create on the field? And I think all the best ones for me were actually working hard, achieving and winning things. You know, we throw back to like places like Queenstown with Tins and, and Hass. We, we had a great time there, but that's just another memory. But in terms of the best ones, it's all through hard work and winning. Do you think he got the best out of you because of the edge that he brought and because of the way he challenged you almost mentally, really? Because you, you talk about your life under Stuart Lancaster and, and Martin Johnson. I don't know whether those were similar relationships or different, but I'm just interested as to whether Hask has spoken, and, and we had Eddie on the other day, you know, there's, there's great af- affection between them. And Hask has said publicly, Eddie got the best out of me almost by cuddling me. Did Eddie get the best out of you by challenging you mentally in the way that you sort of called out in the, in the paragraph I read out? Yeah, it certainly wasn't a cuddle. No. Hask, he had his role as like the, the jester and all, all you had to do, if I'm right, was run hard and, and hit people hard. Whereas my sort of role was being one of the oldest players and not being very good because as a player, we're not going to get you much better, Dylan. But what I like about you is your work ethic and your mindset and your, your set piece is good, you know? So he goes, as being one of the older players, you're just going to have to work harder than anyone else here and be the example of hard work. So while Hass had to just run hard and tackle hard and be funny, I basically had to just outwork or be seen to be the example of work ethic within that group, which he provided plenty of opportunities for me to display that. Hass, did you watch Eddie and Dylan's relationship and wince, or were you totally unaware? So I was unaware of a lot of it, you know, so because so Dylan, Dylan and I's kind of relationship, we'd always be mates and it's something I want to explore late, later on in the show. But his, my impression initially of, of Dills was someone that lived and breathed from rugby, came from New Zealand, so he must absolutely love it, um, was really keen to play, was always my mat, kind of got the measure of me pretty early, the way he, he was with me, you know, always kept on my toes, wasn't frightened to fucking give me shit. And it was the reverse, it was the kind of the opposite of me, you know, in terms of how we, we, how we did things. And as we got older and, and sort of Dylan, I think, you know, his personality changed in terms of understanding the finite nature of the career and everything else and his leadership role within England, we became even closer. And I, Dylan and I would speak all the time about stuff. But I sometimes couldn't resonate with what... I could see certain aspects, but I didn't see the, the stuff around his interactions with Eddie because I'd heard Eddie, like I said in the show, was going to go completely mad. I heard that we were in for a real shock. I heard that, you know, he was pretty up and down. You know, people had turned up for training and played bad in the weekend. He'd given them £20 and told them to fuck off and get a taxi home. You know, I'd heard all about this kind of stuff. So... I would say, I'd come and have a coffee with dinner, but like, how are you? And he'd a little bit, a bit like shell-shocked. Like, What's happened? He goes, well, I said something in the media I thought was fine. And then he's just fucking chewed me out. But I, I never saw it. But what I did see with their relationship was nobody worked harder than Dylan Hartley in the, the, the entire time under Eddie Jones. Nobody. And I wonder if it didn't fucking wear away his knee ultimately and end, end it before he got the final glory. But if I had had what the training routine Dylan had, I would have fucking died. I would, there is no way I would have been able to do it. I wouldn't have been able to put up with it. The, the, you know, the, the early morning, the resting sessions, just as we were coming to breakfast and I was holding court, telling a shit story at breakfast, Dylan was coming in from his probably his second session of the day, live wrestling, running. And, and that wasn't just the fact that when we had meetings, a lot of people, when they're made captain of, of a team, it's like a nine to five job. They turn up, they shake hands, they fucking give a speech that someone's told them to do, pose for photos, they sit with a press conference and they don't really say anything. 
Dylan had to run a whole fucking team from nine to five, five to nine, the whole entire round while training, while expected to have, and he won't say this himself, but while expected to have higher, higher results, higher discipline, and also motivate a whole set of players that pretty much lost their way after t- 2015 and motivate a whole set of players to, to buy into something. And then because it was the best environment any of us ever had, not to fuck it up. And it was pretty remarkable. Like, I, I, you know, I know Dills has booked out the, the, the hurt and that's why we've managed to get him on because he doesn't come on for free. It's, it was a pretty amazing, amazing thing. And I, and I listed him as one of the best captains I've ever worked with because of that development. And if you'd said that, you know, if you'd said that 10 years ago, 20 years ago when we, when we first met, I would have laughed. But to see it now, to see what he did at Northampton, to see what he did with England, under that amount of pressure was second to none, really. And, uh, and that's why I've kind of... He's got up in my admiration more so than, than anything. And I have the most respect for him because it was an amazing thing to behold. But fuck me, he got worked hard. I got all the compliments occasionally with Hass, mate, you're getting old. Dill's got shit that nobody, nobody saw, which, you know, it's probably, as he said, he owes Eddie his career in some ways. But I think I might have cried a few times if Eddie had spoken to me like that. That is very interesting. That almost the, the five to nine stuff, so outside of what Hask was saying with the expectations of the job, was that you saying, I need to do this to keep the job? Or was that Eddie saying, you need to do this if you want the job kind of thing? Was, was, were you being driven to do it or were you choosing to do it? No, no, no. I was driven to do it massively. The example is, is like, you know, when training finishes and the boys kind of um, meander down to the, the recovery, you know, food, recovery, ice baths, sauna, that sort of stuff. As a captain, you, you know, once a week, you probably go straight into media. You know, you don't eat straight away. You don't recover straight away. You go do media. But then equally, it would be like the management side of it, um, being pulled into kind of, kind of boardroom style meetings, set around like departments feeding back, you know, what do you want to do here? You know, this is a travel to Scotland, for example. You know, what hotel do you want to stay in? Where do you want to eat out tonight? It was just constant, like, and everyone, because Eddie, Eddie drove such a, a, a kind of um, well-run ship, everyone was performing. So even, like, off the field, people were getting stuff done. And obviously, there was a lot of decision-making in and around that. So I had so many people kind of coming to me. In downtime, I didn't really have downtime, which is, it was fine, because th- that was my role, you know, and that, that's why I had a job. And um, I kind of threw myself into it and uh, burnt myself out. Every, every tournament came home. And I'd, I'd need like a week or two to kind of recover from, um, you know, any sort of tournament we had or any sort of tour. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Do you think it's nice that you've got some appreciation for all the people who threw you under the bus so many times over the discipline stuff? Yeah, I, I got like a sense of, um, you know, after we, after we grand slammed that first year, I obviously got thrown into that role. And um, every presser I went to for about three weeks or three games, it was still, do you trust yourself? your disciplinary record, how are you going to be the example when your example is terrible? So kind of dragging that sort of um, those couple of bags of rubbish around with me in terms of my disciplinaries was, was difficult because it wasn't difficult. Like it didn't fucking bother me. It was just like wasted air, like talking about it. Like people just want to talk about it. I'm just like, all right, I'll answer it. So to get to any of the, the positive stuff, we always had to go through that. And even today promoting the book, like you know, every person I've talked to, they wanted to talk about that. But uh, after we, we kind of grand slammed that, um, that first season, I felt like I could almost walk into the press room with, with my shoulders back and my head held high and, and just kind of look the painos of this world in the eye and kind of stare them down and just be like, yeah, I'm delivering. The team is delivering. We're, we're doing everything that you said I couldn't. And uh, that's the same story throughout my, my career, I suppose, with 
the whole narrative of um, you're not even that good or playing hooker, there's always direct competition, whether it's Lee Mayer, Steve Thompson, Tom Youngs, Rob Weber, Jamie George, Luke. There's always direct competition. So the narrative was always the other player is better. He's got shit discipline. Don't pick him. So I always enjoyed that narrative of just getting my head down, grafting, setting some goals, making a bit of a comeback. And then again, looking people in the eye and letting them know that, that I'm here and they're not. I'm going to continue down the line of, of, of the, the discipline thing in a moment, but I really want to ask you about your relationship with the media. Did you, you did a couple of games at the Beeb in the Six Nations, didn't you? I did one. You yeah. did one. Smoke where smoke is due. You were very, very good. I think I messaged you at the time. I, uh, there was a real buzz around your presence in studio. There is a long list of sportsmen who've gone from hating the media, despising everything they stand for, into, oh, this, this looks quite nice. I wouldn't mind a job in the media. Are you going to be the, the latest of that? I'm thinking sort of Mike Atherton, NASA, who's staying in the cricketing world. And what was your relationship like with the media throughout your career? I imagine it evolved, but it, it appeared, certainly on the other end of the mic at times, that you fucking hated everything the media came with. I just grew to, to understand what it was. You know, for everything good, uh, I provided plenty of bad. And unfortunately, like I said, that those bags of, of rubbish I had to drag with me everywhere to talk about you know even when I retired it wasn't about retirement it was about look at the rap sheet and even when selling a book it's like look at the rap sheet and it's like for fuck's sake like <laughs> you know but like it's the juicy stuff it's, it's easy and I remember when I retired I went to rugby writers dinner they asked me to present an award and I was like what me like and my agent's like yeah yeah go it'll be good for like career prospects and stuff like that so I'm on stage and like oh then I got given the mic and I was like oh fucking ironic isn't it hated all you pricks for years and avoided you and dodged all your questions. Now I'm here networking, looking for a job. <laughs> like, I joined the gang. But do you know what I find when I did that, um, that Six Nations? I'll let you work out who it was, but I was on with a couple of other ex-players. It was all like before and the trucks out the back. And this is fucking weird. Like, as a player, used to turning up on the bus, getting like whizzed in, you know, there's food and drink, there's a toilet, there's all these things. You are there. Everything is there for you as the... The, the show you know and all of a sudden like you're getting like the skips out the back going in like the trade entrance and it's like who are these people these are my new friends and it's like we're, we're out the back with um where the rigs are and stuff like that and and this guy's come up to me and gone oh i'm on with you today and i'm like oh, okay cool nice to see you obviously know his name and yeah pleasantries and all that and he's like what are you going to talk about today i went oh, i'll tell you what sean edwards he'll be pumping him up they'll be coming so hard off the line but owen and George, they'll just be dinking it in behind, negate the line speed. And then the one time that France don't come as hard off because they're second guessing whether they're going to kick it or not, Owen and George will bring the attack to life and England will create an opportunity. And he goes, okay, I'll probably bounce off that at some point. So then like an hour later, we're going live and they fire straight to the sky. Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Oh, <laughs> yes! The old witness yes! protection. The old witness it's protection of the lights just come on. I love it. No. This is the, the art of storytelling, right? Jerry fucking Gusket, right? He's like, so Jerry, what do you think? He's like, oh, I reckon Sean Ebbles had the defense, you know, coming really hard off the line. And uh, Owen and George probably just dinking him behind early on and get him set. And I'm just sitting there going, fuck it out. Like, I learned such a good lesson that day. Like, <laughs> Welcome to the game. It, that, it's a that well world, path. You obviously come from an environment where, you know, honesty and uh, with, with your teammates, especially, and that sort of trust element, I was just like, all right. Okay, 
I get it. Do you reckon it was like day one when a young apprentice builder goes and they ask him to get bubbles for a spirit level tartan paint and go and wait, ask for a long wait? Gus gets God fucking Hartley mug, right? Okay, we make the tease. Oh, he referred to me as a show pony in my, my career, and I was like, if is it? I'm as far from a show pony as you could get. I was more like a Clydesdale or something like that. <laughs> if you're a show pony, I must be a shy horse. If that's the way we're, if that's the way we're going. But do you, do you think you're misunderstood because of the way you were with the media and the way that the public perceive you? I found it hard because you know when I always had to keep up a guard because of my past and I couldn't give too many headlines, so I shied away from doing anything extra. And then equally, when I when I got that captaincy role. I didn't do anything extracurricular. I only did RFU and only did media when England asked me to because I didn't want to be seen as, and I, this is just my, my own call, like Eddie's captain isn't the captain that goes on BT Sport, isn't the captain that's doing podcasts and, and putting himself out there. So I kept my head down massively in, in that time. And um, you, you kind of alluded to it at the start there, Hass. Like I did media one day coming back from concussion with England under Eddie and uh, they said, oh, if you get another knock to your head, you know, you worried about your career and I went of course I am but we'll deal with that if it ever happens it's not you know then the headline comes out like Hartley's worried about career and Eddie's like mate what the fuck you to be in fucking media pop star we'll get has to be the fucking captain he actually said that <laughs> genuine yeah, excellent on, he have he's like if you want to be a media pop star you know like fucking go home basically I, that's not your your role here so I learned under Eddie as, as well like I work for the RFU, not as a puppet has, but, and I worked for Northampton. So those values and their message came before mine because I had a role. And that's where I find it really hard as a player to put your head above the parapet because you're putting your own opinions and values before the team. So I basically kind of made a, a conscious decision that I would save my opinions and views for now. It's interesting you mentioned the concussion. How are you nowadays? You know, are you, are, do you creak from morning, noon and night? Are you struggling with short-term memory or are you kind of piecing yourself back together? Uh, this is just little things that um, there's not enough to make me seek help, but there's little things that just, I suppose, just have that little kind of seed of doubt or worry. But I think if you um, kind of sit in that, that guardian piece, if you say you've got a sore finger and you Google it, it's like you've got leprosy. So... I try not to think. I try and lead a fairly healthy lifestyle and, and just try and keep myself busy. And in this sort of time, like being busy is obviously difficult. There's things happening there, but not enough to kind of... What, what sort of things? Um, yeah, I muddle my words, a little bit of memory stuff, dizziness every now and then. Yeah. Which is terrifying. And it would be terrifying for immortals like those of us who've only watched the game does that worry your your wife and, and your kids and stuff or is she sort of par for the course because i know she, you, you mentioned a lot of what she had to go through with you does she keep quite a keen eye on you at this point yeah i mean i think that the whole idea is like healthy body healthy mind and, and then it's reciprocated you know she's heavily interested in kind of rebuilding me <laughs> it's quite funny i actually messaged Hass earlier off the back of that interview, a medical company's actually reached out offering free Ostanol, which is basically like lubricant for your joints. It's like WD-40 for humans. So, are you going, yeah. are you going to go in for it? Yeah, you want some? Has? But I've had, I'm more Ostanol than I am human. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's mad. But I, I know in some of the stuff you said, at, at some point you were so fucked up you couldn't wipe your own ass. What was the story with 
I mean, I can't wipe my own ass because I've got someone to do it for me because, you know, before <laughs> lockdown, things were going well. But What do you do without a B-Day? <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, funny enough, the person who wipes my ass is called B-Day, so it's quite nice. Talk to me, so why couldn't you wipe your ass? Slight exaggeration, but, like, if you cast your minds back to, like, scrummaging 10 years ago, before, like, these pre-engage and leaning on stuff that <clears> happens <throat> now, the impacts were that kind of bad. You know, I've bulged three discs in my back, and, um, you know, my lumbar... And my QLs would just seize up. And your rotation, like trying to look over your, your neck. I've seen you after games, you know, once you've been tackling all game and rucking, you can't move your neck side to side. So it was just the same sort of um, situation with my lower back. We had a chat, Alex, me and Dylan, the other day. And I think we're both in agreement that, you know, we're very thankful for what, for what rugby's done. And I, I won't put words into his mouth. I'd be interested to see what he would say, but I wouldn't change anything. And I do miss it. I know for the bravado, I do miss the playing and the regime and everything else. But the terms of body-wise, I was talking to my sports psychologist when I was doing the fighting stuff, and I was, you know, and I was sitting there and I was having a bit of a, a bit of a slump. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to reach out. I want to look at some performance stuff, and I want to talk about some other things. And I had a chat with him, and I said, um, you know, he goes, "How are you?" I said, "Well, do you know what? I actually, I went to see him. I limped in. My ankle was really sore, and I sat down. He said, "You look fucked." I said, "Well, actually, I've had my blood test done, um, and I, my blood's—I've uh, shown a lot of wear and tear and damage anyway. But obviously, the, the extra fighting stuff has, has really pushed that to the edge." And he goes, "Do you think you're addicted to pain?" You know, I said, I don't know what you mean. Why would I be addicted to pain? I'm not, you know, I don't pop pills. I don't do anything. Like, he goes, "No, you're addicted to pain." I said, "Well, to be honest with you, I've been in pain every day since I was probably 23." 23 and 35 every single day i'm talking about waking up sore going in training and sore. when you're in the the grind of it you don't notice because the very fact you're getting up routine you get in you know there's days when you i remember when we used to do the warm-ups we had a great guy called tweety um who used to work with england he used to play a great game i mean this is how stupid adults are he made up simon says but said tweety says <laughs> and for us it was like the fucking greatest day in the world you got you got 35 adults essentially going tweety can we play tweety says can we play tweety says and some days you'd come out for an afternoon session after one of john wells's mauling mauling touch game full contact mornings and you'd roll on your back and you just lay on the penny hill pitch and be like fuck me i feel so bad and a session hasn't even started and i know i've got maybe an hour and a half two hours full contact and I, the psychologist said to me you know dick's the pain he goes well, how are your how are your teammates like what state are they in and I hadn't asked anyone, I hadn't seen anyone. And I sort of, in retirement, when I was a player, I wasn't that social, bizarrely, even though I was like a big gobshite on, in the media. But Dylan, you know, I went around to Dylan's and we sat down and we, A, we had like a lovely time just having a sit down, a chat and like chewing the shit like we used to and chewing the fat like we used to in the change room. But I said to him, how are you? And he was like, I'm fucked. And I was like, oh my God, thank God. Because I am in pieces. And in the last two months alone, I spent two and a half grand of my own money, I've got no, I hadn't got medical insurance because all the way through our careers we were looked after. I had no aid to get an MRI scan, an, inject, an MRI scan on three parts of my body. I need treatment on three bulging discs in my back at three different points. I need injection in my ankle. Uh, I need sh- shoulder surgery. I need like all this multitude of, of stuff. And, and, you know, and there's no one's going to pay for that apart from I am. And obviously you don't get insurance payout because it's all classed as, as wear and tear. And we are... We are not unique. And I said to Dill, I don't want to tell us to him. I said to him, how are you? And he went, well, every time I go for a long walk, my hip tightens up so much so that I have to get a stick and stick a stick into it to help loosen trigger point it so I can get home. 
and I can't walk. I, I was going to get a dog, and I can't get a dog because I can't walk. I can't walk further than anything. And, and my wife just says I shuffle. I shuffle everywhere. So it's a really weird place to be in. It's, I'm 35. You're 34. Dilsey, 35. 34. 34. And we're both nile fucked, and we haven't even been retired longer than a year. Well, I've been two years. Dilsey, a year. I think all those things that you um, you obviously have now, you played with all those. I played with all, all my shoulder, knees, ankles, all these things. But every day you've got like processes, you've got people, you've got physios, osteos, uh, your access to MRIs, jabs, access to kind of hot, cold treatments. You've got it all like five, six days a week to get you up for training and to recover. But all of a sudden it just like drops off and you've got to go out to the real world. You've got to work. And it's like all these things that were keeping you going are not there anymore. And like fair play to Hass, you, you're paying for it. My, my physio Kevin did that. I reckon I must have had because it's like a it's a non-steroid. It's literally like joint flu. It's like WD40. So you're, you know it's like a really natural product. I must have had. I've had them in knees, ankles, hips, finger, everything. To you know, and you basically instead of having you know, if you go on the NHS, a lot of times they just go put a steroid injection in that because we don't have to put our bodies. Normal people don't have to put their bodies through that. But you know, I've had osteo on my ankle five days before an England game just to be able to go and play. I had to inject myself in the arse once in an England change room, toilets, just with a, a something called Voltarol, which was anti-inflammatory, because I didn't want to tell the England people, because I didn't want to not play, but I, I so wanted to play the game. that I, I didn't want to let them know because they already thought I was a bit iffy. And you look back now and you think, <laughs> that fucking, what was, I, what was I doing? You know, having anaesthetic in like areas of your body just to be able to get through a game. Because you love what you do, you love your teammates, you want to win. I'm an advocate for rugby. Like, I love, I love the game and I want the game to continue and to get better and to, to develop. But, like, how the game professionally kind of normalises it. It's just normal to get, like, um, you know, have surgery and then be back in, in record time to play again. It's almost like clapped that you get back that early or, you know, like banging jabs in a week before a game. Like, same thing, kind of getting jabs in the hips just to to be able to go into training camp. And I think the, the, the real early days, like 10 years ago, the Volterols, they were pretty common practice in what I kind of saw in changing rooms. And now, now it's all regulated. Like the medicine bag is, is regulated. The doctor's kind of got to give them out. But, you know, I, I remember um, I played a game. I uh, came off with a shoulder injury. I got sent home with like a bag of ice, a bag of ice. It's like, come, come for medical check-in tomorrow. And... Um, I go in, I'm like, oh, I didn't sleep last night. Like, slept in the lounge, like, upright, kind of dozed off a bit. I was in pain, going for medical check. Or well, better send you for a scan. That's Sunday. Monday, you go for the scan. And they're like, yeah, you've broke your shoulder. And it's like, <laughs> I'll be two days at home with no painkillers with some ice. It's like, yeah, you got broken uh, scap. And I'm just like, oh, cheers. Thanks. Any normal person that at time of incident would be like, shit, this is bad. Get this person to the hospital. But no, rugby, it's like you get the ice on, you go sit in the change room after the game, you kind of waddle out with your game ready in one hand and your ice on the other. And then you've got to pose for some photos and try and sign some stuff for the kids. And it's just crazy how it's just normal. And then, you know, Monday morning when you go to injury clinic, it's like, oh, that guy, he, he's out for six months and, yeah, he snapped his, his tendon or his hamstring off the bone. And it's just so normal. You don't even blink when, when you hear half of it. 
And if someone gets a big gash, you got like five people crowding around, like taking photos of it. And there's no like privacy. There's no patient confidentiality. There's no curtains, is there? No one's drawn a curtain over. Someone's got a huge cut on their their back or this, or someone's got a problem with this. Everyone's fucking peering in. I'll tell you one player, actually, he broke his neck and came in the next day and was like, my neck's fucking like, you know, like really sore. And they said, well, look, take it easy. Look after it. You know, didn't, they said, well, should I get a scan? No, we won't. We won't get a scan. Like it wasn't getting any better. And they had a chiropractor come in to treat him. And they said, look, so maybe you should just go and see this chiropractor. Maybe I'll be able to loosen it. And he lay down and his player said to the chiropractor, please don't try and manipulate my neck. Whatever you do, don't try and like, crack it. Cause you know, chiropractors love a little, a little love a crack. So anyway, he's doing it. It's loosening up soft tissue. And then he starts shaking the guy's head. He said, please don't do it. He said, no, no, just look. And goes to do it. And obviously the bloke leaps off the bed. A week later, it still wasn't, wasn't great. They then sent him for an MRI scan and he'd broken his neck. And a guy could have killed him, essentially, or paralyzed him by manipulating his neck because there wasn't, they either didn't MRI scan straight away. And, it, and, it's, and it's weird because exactly what Dylan said. I'm not Sam Rugby and anybody who tries to make a contact sport safe is stupid. And I'm not advocating trying to make it any safer. What I do think is some, some aftercare stuff and, and the fact that an understanding that medical side of, of rugby and the budgets is so important, you know, because people I know, because the club ran out of budget, they didn't get them scanned because they had done their budget up and they couldn't do it. So they were going, well, can you hop on it? Can you hop on it? And the bloke's like, no, it's quite sort of, well, if you can hop, go out and train and then find out two weeks later, the guy's been playing with a broken ankle all because they couldn't scan it or didn't have the budget. So it's a bit of a, a mad situation. But if you ask me tomorrow, could I play in a World Cup final? Would you stick out a set in my ankle? I'd fucking bite your hand off to go and do it. So we're all as bad as each other. We're all as bad as pushing it. It is a mad, it is a bit like the Wild West out there in contact sport. This is astonishing. I, I genuinely think this is going to end up getting some pickup because we've got two of England's, you know, most recent heroes from, you know, the most successful England side in the last whatever it is, 20-odd years or so, saying that the game is essentially a Faustian pack now. You sell your soul, you get the rewards, but you pay the price as soon as you retire. How we develop this, first of all, so would you have changed any of it? Do you look back now at all with regret, Dylan, or do you, do you sign that contract that you've got the lovely house and you've had the trappings and you know, you've been England captain and that comes at a price? And is that price worth it where you sit right now? It's irrelevant because I do sit here, so I can't change it, so it's pointless. What I would do is I would use the position that we have now to try and protect the players, the future players, which will in tow protect the game. Because if we keep if we keep playing two games a week, we're going to get more injuries and you know, I don't want that to happen. And then that affects the game, the more serious those injuries are. So I think using the position to to learn from potentially what we've been through and like I've, I've got a solution already, like contact training just needs to be non-existent. Technique training, yeah, but contact training needs to go. I would sign up 100% on the chance that you might get injured playing. But I feel like some of the contact or the trainings I've been involved with over the, the kind of 15, 16 years I played, the risk of, well, and seeing people get injured in training doing the things we were doing, if we can reduce that, uh, I think the game will be in a, a much better, much better place. Alex, you, know, you just asked what we do about it. Dills and I, we sit around talking about stuff and I don't think I necessarily feel we have all the answers, but it is, it is interesting that rugby promotes 
a lot from within, you know, in a lot of roles. You know, if you play, well, if you're a good player, then you must be a good coach. What, what qualifies you to be a good coach? Well, I, I finished playing last year, so I must be good. You know, oh, we, we need a head of this department who knows fuck all about it, but because he was a good lad in rugby, we're going we're gonna to employ him. I don't think they have the answers, but I, I sat down with deals before and said, there are so many things that could be changed if they were taken out of the hands of, say, coaches and clubs and were made mandatory because no player doesn't want to play games. But, you know, the overtraining is there, you know, because if team A are doing contact training and team B find out that they haven't been doing contact training, they lose. It's because they weren't doing the contact training. It's not because they, they might not have got the mental side right, they might not have got the right selection right, they might not have got the structure of the coach right. It's because if they were doing something and we weren't doing it, we've got to do what they do. So it's interesting, we you know, when Wasp started, you know, and, and got the first kind of conditioners in and made everybody, you know, massive and fit. The other two, they beat everyone for a period of time because no one else had that. Now every team has a conditioner. Every team is as big as each other. That level playing field is now gone to the point where, you know, what makes the difference? We'll look at Exeter. Eddie, when he came on, I think kind of summed it up quite nicely. You've got a set of players who love what they do, who love playing for each other, who are well-disciplined. There's not a massive amount of squad, you know, uh, changing that in that squad. They add a few people and they absolutely love what they, what they do. And I, I think that, you know, we could make some changes, as Dill said, educate the, the, the players coming in, but not just educate them on, on change mm-hmm. of contact rules, but encouraging them, as we have done, to do more outside the, the, outside the game. Because, you know, Dill's when he first, when I first knew you, I don't know if this is fair to say, but you were a massive fan, even before you came, doing stuff off the field, you, you wanted to play and that, that was it. And, and I think you've, you've changed that now, haven't you? Well, for a long time, understanding that it's about just as important about doing the work. That's bullshit. I always did extracurricular. No, no, I mean, I mean, like, well, and I mean, off-field stuff, like commercial stuff is what I mean. I just wasn't the flavour of the month, mate. I never got offered anything. <laughs> oh, I, so, I just thought you didn't do anything. I didn't realise nobody liked you. I didn't, I didn't have three agents like you as well. Like, <laughs> fine. I, I was I the kid. I was the, I was the naughty, naughty fat kid that, you know, nothing came my way. Oh, fine. Well, I, so I didn't know. I, I, thought that, I thought it was something that you changed the mindset. Like, I, I thought you were very much like head down, focus on, on what you're doing. Don't worry about the rest of it. It, it will take care of itself. I, I thought that was what you, you were like for a period of time. No, you know my remit. Yeah, no, I know now. Now you're even more mercenary than I am. That's why I asked you earlier whether you feel like you, you were misunderstood because the person that I think the fans think you are and the person that the media think you are is completely different to how you are. And we saw a glimpse of it when you did the BBC stuff. We see, we see a glimpse of it in this book. You'll see a glimpse of it in this, this interview that you're intelligent, you're gregarious, you're outgoing, you've got so much more going for you instead of an angry Kiwi. No, thank you, Hess. Very kind words. I'd say on that lovely compliment, I'm going to quickly stick in the mid-show trail and then we're going to come back to this because it's, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. But a quick reminder, you're watching and listening to the Good, the Bad and the Rugby on 21.6 Sport with me, Alex Payne, alongside Hask and the great man that is Dylan Hartley. We are going to some very, very interesting places this week. Don't forget you can sign up to our social media sites, which thousands and thousands of you have done so far. Lovely to see you all. Please play nicely. We've been dipping in and out of there on occasion as well, but we're going to force Hask in there at some point to come and be polite to you all. That is also where you're going to find all the information about the shows that we've got coming up. We've got some special events planned, a whole host of great content that is coming your way. And you can check out James's Q&A from the weekend across social media, including the answer to the question, if you could punch one person in the face without repercussions, who would it be? Couldn't think of anyone. I, I thought there was, I tell you what, actually, there's, some, some, there's a, a fan, an area of fans, right, who have never played who are very toxic, who are very nasty about players. And uh, hopefully they, they actually cause some mental health issues in, 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 a, in a player by what they wrote. I'd fucking punch all of them in the face. Dylan, you got one free hit? No. Another motherfucker. 
Evidently, history shows. Next up in our Facebook Q&A, we've got Tins on Friday. Once again, there's a specific thread on the Facebook group where you can leave your questions and we'll ask you the best ones. Type in good, bad, rugby across social media. We are very easy to find. Dylan, picking up on the thread we were just talking about, do you worry about the future generations of players coming through physically, mentally, concussion, damage to the joints, etc.? Yeah, I suppose I do. Is it going further in the wrong direction or are you seeing towards the end of your career progress that it is learning the lessons that you, you need it to learn? Progress? They've just banged two games a week in. Jack Clifford's just retired. It's like... Stupid question. Okay. It's screaming out and I kind of thought um, kind of COVID might have been that point to not strike but at least lay down some stronger kind of ground rules from, from the players of, of what they'd accept. And I'll tell you, if I was still playing at 33, 34, and, and I suggested two games a week, I would have happily been that um, that person to pop my head above the parapet. But I, I truly think it's got to come from within. Uh, it's got to be a current player. There's no point myself and Haas, two washed-up kind of ex-players, just, you know, people are going to say, oh, one, you're a thug, two, you're a shit player. They don't even see what you're trying to do. You, you kind of fall at the first, second, third hurdle. And then the third sort of one is like he's trying to promote a book or four, you know, he's just trying to get airtime for his media career. Even coming in with a genuine care for, for the, the future players, people choose not to see that message. And I think it screams out, like I said, when, when you've got players like Jack Clifford retiring. He was plagued by injuries his whole career, but he's not the only one, you know. The, it's it's going to start happening, I hope it doesn't, but to, to guys slightly younger and, and probably more frequent. It is terrifying to hear. I, I just sort of wonder why players don't speak up more. Is it? Is it? Obviously, you're signed up and you're within clubs. And sort of because you're in it. You're, you're in it. You, do, you don't realise when you're in it. Uh, I didn't care when I was in it. You're in right. the big machine. You know, you're preparing for the weekend and you haven't really got time and you're in the team and your body feels good at the time and you're getting paid well. It's just not on your radar. And the other thing is understanding the landscape. Even as an England captain and this is probably down to my lack of time care or interest I don't even understand the landscape of Premier Rugby PRL RPA England Rugby like it's so fucking complicated it's like Spaghetti Junction like who's got the power I don't even understand it it's all it's all kind of smoke and mirrors and I, I truly don't even now understand it and that's why I can't give it's probably why I won't get involved with it because I, it's just too complicated and it takes time to understand it and and what for, you know? What happens, you know? I've, I've got my own life to kind of concentrate on now. And do you think we're going to get thanks, Ask, if we, we get contact training reduced? <laughs> no, but I think, you know, you and I helped negotiate that last EPS contract and got no, no benefit out of it. And, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. Whenever you get in these situations, it's like we say, shit player, in a Haskell's talking shit, he'll say anything, take his clothes off, do whatever they'll level against you. That's the problem with, with rugby. And, and also, because the beauty of being a team sport is that actually, if the world around you is falling apart and you go into training and you're with your friends, you, you immediately forget all about your problems. Anything goes, you get on there, and as soon as you step back into the car, the real world hits you again. And you never want to be the person that disrupts that because it's so easy to have 
the coach will come in and he'll say, right, lads, I know there was a few issues around the club about the 25% pay cut. I understand how things haven't played out. I know some of you aren't happy, but we've got big season to win. Rugby's going to start again. We need to put that behind us. Crack, carry on. Everyone would have gone, yeah, the leaders would have gone, okay. If someone's in the corner still going on about it, he'd be like, fucking shut up. It's gone. It's done. Right? And that is as, as, as much as anybody will put into it. So when I, I got asked, and Dills got asked through the last EPS, I genuinely was like, right, do you know what? There's no pay out of this. There's no, I want to I wanna do something right. And we, we fought really hard to get those four weeks of mandatory holiday put in, you know, in, in, at the end of the season, making sure that it was taken away from the clubs. Because what happens is that you get a holiday and you go away for seven days and the club call you up and go, oh, would you like to come in and train? And I'd be like, no. And they go, well, everybody else is, you know, so you can come in and train whenever you want. And then before you know it, you've been in. You've been off for two weeks. You've been in for two weeks. You've lost your actual mandatory five-week kind of a holiday, or four weeks or whatever it was. So I would speak up, but I think we would quickly get shut down and told we didn't know what we were talking about. I don't think necessarily people want to want to change. But Dylan and I have been quite, quite vocal about it. But I, I think it's... Ellis was interesting because Dylan and I had always joked about setting up a rival uh, RPA, just mainly to fuck Damien Hopley off, just purely really to razz him up, but just for the, just for fun. I love we love Hoppers, but I just thought we'd wind him up. But Ellis actually tried to do it, but he sent out seven hundred emails. He got a hundred replies. I if find that, that astonishing, if that shows you how little players care about themselves until they until it actually directly affects them, there's nothing more. So. It would be interesting to get some people in. And I've like tried to do it, you know, with people and said, you know what, can I come and sit down and maybe just steer a few things? Or, you know, do you think we could change some things here? Or do you think we're good to encourage young players this? Or have you told players this? <clears throat> but, you know, I'm maybe not the right person to do it because I, I certainly have when I was at WASP captain a couple of times, you know, I'd go in and say, look, I think we need to change a couple of things. And I was told, well, you fucking didn't remember the, the you know, two lineouts yesterday. You should probably worry about your own job. And that's, you know, that's unfortunately the life we live in. Because if you haven't, thou without sin cast the first stone, it's very difficult with people with egos to be told they're not doing it right. And to go in and tell someone, do you know what, you probably don't need to do this much training, by the way, you haven't done this, you haven't done that, by two, you know, two old fuckheads who now don't, don't play anymore. But we'd have a good go at it, Dills, even if we were consultants, I reckon. We take expenses, would we travel expenses, <laughs> maybe, you know, put up a, you know, a, a solar house or something like that, maybe? <laughs> I don't think much work would get done. But um, no, I, I kind of agree. And that's where I think the RPA are kind of caught in a rock and a hard place. And um, you know, I think there was an example a couple of years ago where the, the RPA negotiated a new deal for, for premiership players. And we, as England players, were premiership players. And they negotiated a couple of buy or, or down weeks when the Six Nations was on. And it was like a really, really good result. And they were proud as punch. And they delivered that news to the England players and we're like, we've got everyone a couple of weeks off during the Six Nations. And as they've said that, they've realized that we're not getting any time off there. So they've negotiated and agreed a deal without consulting probably their most powerful 32 players or influential players or English players in the league that have gone and agreed to, to this deal. And we were like, well, where the fuck's the England players rest? And then people straight away, you get met with, well, you get paid this per game. You know, if you don't want to play for England... It, it's just like you're always met with, with conflict. It's never met from a, a place of trying to understand. And that's why I was kind of, I wasn't really frustrated. I don't really care because I'm not part of it. But I think COVID and that six months off would have been a perfect chance 
to get that whole landscape of people I don't even understand from the Premier Rugby clubs, RPA, PRL, all these things. Chuck all your ideas. What do you want? Get it on the table. And then start from a, a, a kind of ground up and, and try and build a, a product that everyone kind of benefits from. But it feels like everyone's just trying to to hold or, or fight their corner still. Can I ask you, do you look back now, you're, you're out of it. Do you look back and are you a little bit bitter? Are you despairing? Are you philosophical? Are you not really interested? I've got other things to do and I need to move on. Well, I think that's the philosophical side of it. It's pointless looking back. And uh, I purposely don't really watch too much rugby and consume myself with too much rugby because I feel like that's just kind of like pulling you back here. I enjoy the game and I'll, I'll follow and watch if it's on and convenient, but I'm no way bitter. Fuck me. Like it's given me a hell of a head start in life. It's given me things that I never would have dreamed of doing. And for any kid growing up in New Zealand to, to have a pipe dream of playing professional rugby, you know, to kind of achieve that and exceed probably my own expectations is, you know, I'm nowhere near bitter. Well, if you have an opinion and have a passion about something, and it might not necessarily be with the status quo. That's never been bitter. Like I, I absolutely, myself personally, like I come on here a lot and I have an opinion about different things, but it doesn't mean that I don't love what I did. You know, we, we're talking about trying to get perfection. We're talking about trying to fix pretty obvious areas. We're trying to get some stuff that's so entrenched that it doesn't need to be entrenched. And we both have opinions. I think when we were playing, you know, it's hard to have an opinion because there's a teacher-pupil relationship in everything that, that we do as professional sports people. You know, this is the first time in my life I don't have a boss. I'm genuinely still scared of, of Eddie Jones. I still see old coaches and I, you know, I have respect. But when you're in it, it's very difficult because you're told by everybody, this is how you do it. You've always got a boss. You've always got a manager. So when we come out the other side of it and we're vocal about how we, how we feel, it's not... I spent more time in fucking Dyer Young's office than I did in the training field. Is that getting in the team? <laughs> it was. It was. It was. He was like, listen, Jack Willis is good, mate, but you know, does he have the right chat? Dyer's like, we don't need chat. Do you? Do you? <laughs> um, turns out he didn't. So um, one bad game, one bad decision on anything, you've, you've put yourself above everybody else. And you're the first person they'll go for. And that's, that's what I think Dylan's almost had the reverse, which I quite enjoy, was that he was so slagged and so controversial and then became probably one of the best captains England's ever had and has showed you know more character and fortitude done stuff outside and has more depth and I think it's quite nice it's like a reverse it's a reverse thing turn the party line then then dominating the party line at the end of it and what's Paino doing because I do listen he he started like really clean cut really polished and he's a bit he's a bit rough now he swears a bit I mean, he's hanging around with up. mugs like you and Hask too much. <laughs> Corrupted <laughs> what was once a very golden image and, and a respected broadcaster. And that's, What's that lovely bit of art on your back wall? Very nice. It's by one of the last called Michael Soule. You see, this is, these are the trappings of the media, Dylan. This is why you need to get into it and get, get thickly involved in, um, in front of camera. And that, that is the question I was going to ask you. I mean, do you want to get back involved in the game? Would you ever coach, consult? You've obviously got, you know, politics running through the veins, even if you don't acknowledge it, would, or is it just media and bust? I love coaching. I do a little bit of local stuff every now and then because you kind of speak in your language, the language that you, you almost, you're qualified to speak and you're speaking to people that understand it. But I've seen how hard Steve Borthwick, Paul Gustard, Neil Hatley worked to be a good coach. I'm like, fuck that. Like I, I, did, I did that as a player. Like, I don't want to do that again for the next 20 years of my life. And that kind of turbulent 
life of winning and losing because I don't know what Hass was like, but when, when we lost, like if we played Friday night Northampton and we'd lost, my whole weekend was shit. You know, especially in a captaincy role, you're thinking about how, how's Monday going to go? Got to front up again, shoulders back, head up, good energy, got to go again. Then you lose like 12 in a row and it's like, fuck it out. Like just got to keep going, keep going. So being a coach, I think I'd want to be a good coach, but I, would, I don't want to apply myself like I had to as a player. I, I feel like I've done that. Equally with the um, the media stuff, like I know it's probably, well, fuck it, rugby pass. I'm going to do something with rugby pass, um, my own pod with a, a couple of other players. You can't cut us out. I had a, te- a message from your agent saying, please mention Dylan's pod. We, we are very relaxed on this show. Yeah. It's a big pool. There's plenty of room for everyone to paddle around in. Of course. What, 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 of course. what is, t- tell us about the pod and who you're doing it with and what the aim of it is. I don't know. I just, just saw the figures and uh, I thought I'd jump jump on and, and fill some time. No, no, no. G- genuine, I, I don't know if I'm, uh, I'm actually allowed to say who's on it, but there, there's a player from um, all of the home nations, which is quite cool. So it'll give us quite a diverse look at the game, I hope. Yeah. And I hope it's not too much too much rugby, if I'm honest, because uh, might have to It can to only be better watching. than this junk. You, so, you know, go for I, it. Can I ask still, is so, your reticence, reticence, I should say, to go back into rugby because you have to play a role when you're dealing the rugby person and you actually don't want to do that anymore because there's more to you you're sort of sick of being rugby Dylan do you know what I mean again you're bang on Hass I think there's there's more to me than than rugby Dylan like ultimately when when you are an England rugby player as soon as you leave your house you are effectively acting unless you're Chris Ashton and you kind of drive past people and tell them to fuck off and stuff like that and but I'd never do that you know because I'd always be worried about you know, someone emailing the club going, oh, he was rude. So even when I went out for, for beers with the boys, I'd always be in the corner and I'd always sit and watch and go into the supermarket. And, you know, when you're out for, for dinner in Northampton, a small town like that, but you're having a meal with your family and people kind of just interrupt your meal. I would never say like, can you not be rude? I'm, I'm with my family. I'd always entertain them and I'd wait for them to leave. I'd talk until they left, you know? So, I'd quite like to branch away from, from the rugby stuff, but equally, I love it. You know, I, I love the rugby side of it. And, and then lastly, if I couldn't do the coaching thing, like a consultancy type role would be cool just to go and get a tracksuit on for a day. Uh, I'm sure you'd like it, Has Go into the change room, go into the weights, maybe go do some throwing. But then I don't think you can do both because at some point you're going to upset someone with your attitude towards a team or a comment on a player and that's something that I would try to keep separate, if I'm honest. It's been absolutely fascinating, this. I do want to talk about you and your career, though. And, you know, how do you look back now on everything um, that you've achieved in the game? Yeah, I, I think um, I've said this a couple of times, but, like, I think when you're, on the, when you're on the up, it's easy. It's exciting, 19, 20, 21. All you want to do is play rugby professionally. You want to say you're a professional rugby player, I wanted to prove myself to my parents and people in New Zealand that I could do it. I didn't want to go home as a failure. You know, at 19 years old, I was playing with Carlos Spencer, Bruce Rehana, Sharky Robinson, Paul Tupai, kind of people I grew up and idolised. And I was there doing it in England with them. Not only was I playing with them, I was kind of out drinking with them. I was buying the beers. They were giving me the credit card, get the food, get the beers, drive the car, do all this. So I was, I was fully immersed in it. And then I think when you look back at it, the thing I'm most kind of proud of is sustaining it for so long. 
because on the way up, it's easy, it's fun. You get capped at 21, and it just happens, doesn't it, Hass? It just happens because you're a good young player and you're, on, you're exciting. It, it's, it just happens. But then to keep coming back and getting picked and getting picked under three different managers and getting bans and injuries and, you know, the, the media narrative and never being the, the sexiest player, I think that's what I enjoyed most about it is just sustaining it. Bloke introduced me this morning with 96 England caps. I was like, it's fucking 97. Like, they all count when you're three short of 100, you know. Uh, and I don't want to dumb it down playing for England, but getting there seemed easier than staying there. Staying there was hard. Yeah. What were the happiest days of your career? Uh, golden period, probably. So I got banned for six months in the premiership. Northampton get relegated. Championship year, unbeaten run socialising twice a week with my teammates, quite formative years, you know, Stephen Myler, Chris Ashton. Um, then we come to the premiership, Ben Foden, Lee Dixon, uh, Roger Wilson, James Downey, Neil Best, all these kind of guys. We built Suani Tongahuya. We built this team that then got promoted and then we lost, you know, four or five semifinals in the premiership. And then we play the final. I get red carded in the final and then we win the following year. Those are my best days, the early days. The guys you kind of go out, um, it's all based around beer, really, beer and winning. But the guys you kind of form those, those bonds with through beer and winning, it kind of carries through. So then it, then it was weird. You, you kind of you sat there at 30 years old, 31, 32, and after training, you go home to your family. You don't go for coffee. You're at home and you're doing kind of baby juice and stuff like that. And that kind of core of, of teammates that you grew with isn't there. But then you look 10 years younger than you. It's cyclical. There's a next group, the, the, the James Graysons and Fraser Dingwalls and, and Alex Mitchells. They're kind of out there doing that. The best bit was kind of championship, I reckon. Just no pressure, no spotlight, and just winning and basically touring, you know, long bus journeys and then straight to town when we got back. And it was just good fun. Great day. It, it almost stripped, stripped rugby back. I'm probably gutted that that happened so early in my career because it was just normal then. But say if I'd done 10 years of, of playing for England and, and professional with Northampton and then we got relegated, I probably would have appreciated it a whole lot more because what it, what it did, looking back at it, it just simplified rugby, what it's all about, the social element of it, playing hard, travelling around, playing at kind of backwards, shitty grounds, but you know, just playing the game for what it was, not needing crowds, not needing all that professional kind of warm downs and recovery it was just like yeah it was just it was just enjoyable it was as close to what i think grassroots would be like i'm gonna to have to ask because it is part of your story although i imagine actually before i ask about the charge sheet are you noting that so i grew up on watching france in the early 90s and there were some pretty filthy players in that era who are now lauded as icons of the game and for what they did as filthy players have you noticed a sort of a romance and I'm sort of conscious of parents watching this and young kids, but have you noticed a romance developing around your charge sheet over the years as you've retired or, or are you still copying the flack that you did sort of when it was raw and, and, and you were going through it? Do you know what I mean? The older no, you get and the further you go out of it, the more people kind of laud you for it. Someone said to me, it's, it's, what, what's important is how you, how you leave uh, like an organisation. No one remembers what, how, you, how you came in or, what you did in the middle is how you leave. And I'm very fortunate I got to leave the game uh, with a, a lot of good stories, potentially a, a bit of credit in the bank. So 
the rap sheet is what it is. Like, I don't really care. Like, I could talk what about you, it. What do you day. put it down to? You just being a mad bastard, or, or... Oh, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. So, because I was never, I mean, I had a little bit of skill. I could never do skill in a game. Like, I do it when the pressure was off in training. And athletically, I'm the opposite of what you are, Hask. I'm not overly gifted. I didn't have a personal trainer when I was 13 years old. And <laughs> my mum baked me cakes instead of feeding me steamed chicken breast. So, um, <laughs> you know, I wasn't athletically gifted or overly, you know, I wasn't a game breaker. So I basically, I, I believe I forged a career through kind of mindset and, and work ethic. And my mindset when I played was ultra confrontational. You know, during the time... I was brought up in rugby as well. And this, this is what the book kind of alludes to is I went to Worcester. I cut my teeth at Worcester when they were just a championship club. They've never been to the premiership. So I went to like Worcester at 17 and our first session was like, right, Academy boys. And we didn't even have like official kit. It was like the Academy boys, we trained on dog shit 10, like on the other side, it's a car park now. It was like, go get the Academy, come over, do a morning session. And, like, these championship old Grizzly boys, like, they just started filling us in. Like, you know, we were there to disrupt the morning session, then we'd just get filled in. So my, my two years at Worcester was basically cutting my teeth and, and brawling, basically, kind of old-school forward play. So coupled with my kind of mindset and almost like a learned behavior, that I was like, right, this is how it is. So I, I basically... I'm not saying I learned that there, but it, it probably influenced me massively of, of how to play. And, and being a front row player didn't really have to be that fancy back then. If you could catch the ball, you were good for a prop. I was a loose head prop, remember? So I was ultra competitive and I had to play at a level to be competitive, to be confrontational, to be on the edge. And obviously when, when I, I see rugby as an emotive game, because if you're going to do something that physically hurts, which... 90% of rugby does hurt. You've got to be emotionally in a good place, don't you? As soon as you're not emotionally invested, you don't commit as much. I just loved it as well. Um, but you didn't, you didn't mind not being... You, know, you had the confrontation on the field. But I'm right in saying that you weren't that asked about not being like massively popular because you didn't mind having confrontation off the field. And what I mean by that is the leadership stuff, calling, calling teammates out, calling people out for not doing their jobs... That's, that's quite a thing to do, especially with your own peers and people that you, you know. Yeah, but I think it's in a safe environment. I think rugby's, again, if you can't handle that, you're the one that stands out. If you can't handle the feedback, you're the one. If you're the person giving the feedback, I've never seen anyone being told, to, oh, can you do that politely? I've never seen it. It's always the person that can't take the feedback is the one. So I, I never had any trouble in telling people, what I thought or what I wanted from them because it always came from a good place and I see players that do it now and it's always from a good place. They're always players that demand more of their, their peers and, and themselves, you know. So I don't see that as um, a hard thing to do, you know. I, I find it hard. Like, I, 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 that's why I admired you so much for, for what you did because I, I, I find it hard. Like, you know, I don't have... I have to be in a certain mindset to have that and you, you see me call people out or stand up for myself... But man, man to man, having difficult conversations, especially as a captain, which, I, which you did when you were with England, it, it's an impressive thing to do. And I, I was never that keen on that, that, level of, that level of confrontation. So it's actually not as easy as I think you think it is. I'd have to be, I have to be pretty fucked off to, to be able to do it. But I, I felt you always did that really well. Yeah. 
And I think I think when you um, especially in Eddie's environment, there's, there's no time for for pleasantries. You know, it's just cut to it. We we don't have time. You know, like I, I think I told a story on a podcast with Jake Humphrey of how traditionally rugby's you know the training sessions reviewed after training, and Eddie was like, "Nah, mate, it's a fucking waste of time. Call it during training so you can fix it in training." And without those kind of direct conversations or it's not even a conversation, demands, you ain't going to be able to, to fix things, you know? And uh, I think when Eddie created the environment he did, it was that of demanding feedback from people. And do you remember when um, he almost took the coaches out of training sessions and or he'd blow a training session up when he said, you should be coaching each other? And I do this now when, when, I, um, when I coach kids. I'm like, coach each other, talk to each other. Because you get a whole lot of kids, they're not confident in their voice. They don't talk to each other. You know, you get grown men that don't talk to each other. It's like, get lower at the breakdown. People are too scared to say that. But if you start coaching each other, you know, everyone needs constant feedback because you don't know whether you're doing good or you're doing bad. And I think that's one of Eddie's strongest points is he's constantly giving you feedback. Whether it's what you want to hear or not is a fucking different matter. But, mate, too high, do it again. I remember doing like racking drills with him. Too high, do it again. Too high, do it again. Too high, do it again. And it's like, fucking hell, I'm getting low. And my eyes are starting to roll, but just get lower, do it again. So, right. He, and then he goes, good, mate, do it again. <laughs> he used to, that's what he, but he, he used to text me. He used to walk past and I was doing like extra work with Steve or, or Garcia or whatever. And he'd be like, How yeah, good, mate. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Eddie, Eddie, Matt, has to call me over? No, mate, I was just doing some extra, extra training. But he would be like that. Or he just text me going, mate, Need to run low, you know. Need to run lower. Need better accelerations. Go and do this, and then you you'd go and do it, and you show, and you go, no, mate, not like that. This is what I want, and then he'd show you how to do it, and then still tell you shit, but occasionally go, good, mate, better, better, and then and he'd back it up, and that's that for me made such a difference that the fact that a we had coaches around us, but, but that's from help. like that that's from like a sixty-year-old guy to like a thirty-three-year-old player. Like, how many environments did you play in where? coaches just prepare the team for the weekend there's no actual emphasis on making a player better I experienced this it was almost like you play for England at 21 you don't need to improve whereas I'm like 32 33 Eddie's got like a fucking like a scroll of things I need to get work like to work on and the same thing texting me that texting me this work on this he's basically giving you or planting the seed and then he says to you, you've got the tools to, to get better. Use the staff, bring them to Northampton. I had the nutritionist like on a fortnightly kind of um, round, like 300 mile round trip to, to come to my house to sit down and, and do my skin folds, talk nutrition, sort my subs, all that sort of stuff. So he kind of demanded you use the assets. Whereas in previous regimes, it was like play for England for two months, go home to your club, never hear from them for, for, for two or three months until tour. So he, he demanded so much, but he provided all the tools you needed to get better. That was what I think made why I got so much or played some of my best rugby under him was because of that. Because if you've got people who are willing to work on the game, who accept that they want to work, and you provide them with the tools, and you keep pushing them, and you say, this is how good you could be. Because a lot of coaches go, oh, you're shit. And you're like, okay, but how do I improve it? Well, just go away and work it. Gustard, Hatley, whoever, whoever is there and they're prepared to put the time in getting Dean you know Dean used to come and I used to go and run hills at Penny Hill Park Dean would come to to the wasp ground Dean Benton you know to do extra accelerations because Eddie had said you need to do this and it all and it that's why I think the team was so successful because it was a really unique way of of doing it Dino mate 
How much did he spend on those steps at Penny Hill? They reckon it's about 100 grand on them steps. But we think that what happens we, is... There's a, we could have got the JCB and knocked those up ourselves. Mate, I reckon there's a company who sits around Penny Hill Park Builders and they get on the phone and they're like, fucking hell, Terry. RFU are calling again. What, they want some steps building the side of a bank. How much? 100 grand? Oh, you're going to pay for it? Yeah, fuck yeah, it was 100 grand day one. And they just make it up. There's no way. There's no way things like hills and steps cost 100 bags. We'll do it. That's what we should do. Go and install fitness equipment. Earthworks with Haskell and Hartley. There's a nice ring to that, actually. Dylan, I, I want to get back to, to almost to the beginning. You as a kid, I mean, all, all the stuff we've been talking about, the leadership, which obviously, you know, you've learned so much along the way, but how much of what you were as a player was there at the very beginning in flip-flops? Uh, I won't say you did, you've, you've turned up to your first ever England training session in flip-flops. No, so I, I basically came here on like um, an unofficial gap year exchange thing. Uh, went to school. I made the England under-18s clubs team. And I remember playing against England schools and it was like, fuck these guys, fuck these posh people. So like, you know, that whole outsider mentality I was probably playing against the likes of Hask and that. But within that year, I played for them. And then off the back of that trial game, they picked an under-19s combined touring side to South Africa. And it had like Tom Croft in it, Rory Teague, Ryan Lamb, Michael Hills, people like that. Davey Wilson. I was there as well, wasn't I? Don't know, mate. Can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. I went back to New Zealand. So my, my trip had ended on my return ticket. And then, I went home and I was, I was dossing about in Rotorua and... Uh, what does dossing about in Rotorua involve? Oh, probably thinking about returning to, to school for my final year at Rotorua Boys. My uncle then emails or, or rings and says, oh, I've got a, a letter here from the England Rugby Union. You know, should we open it? So he opened it and he said, oh, you've been invited to an under-19 trip to Cape Town, South Africa. So then I had this moment of, you know, what do I do? Do I go on this trip? My mum and dad aren't made of money. So they're like, yeah, we'll pay for your flight back, you know, one way, but we're not, we're not paying for returns. So you need to go there and, and give it a good crack. So the under-18s manager I played for for England was a guy called Graham Smith and Ollie Redman, and they were the Worcester Academy coaches. So naturally, I was just like, Smithy, can you get me a gig at Worcester, who were the championship side? He's like, I can't promise anything, but we'll sort something out. So at 17... Um, I come back to England. My uncle and auntie picked me up from the airport, drive me to Worcester, drop me at Chandler Halls at Worcester Uni, which is like a fucking prison block. And I must have had like 200 quid to my name or something like that. And my, my Bergen full of my worldly possessions, I kind of got sorted out some fuel expenses from Worcester, you know, like fill this foreman from East Sussex to Worcester, 400 miles or something. It got me a few hundred more quid. And then um, from there, like, I go to this England under-19 training camp flying out to, to Cape Town. So uh, I'm living in a student hall, so I'm, I'm not leaving anything here. So I pack my Bergen again, and I catch the train from Worcester into London. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And this is when I'm 17, 18, first time on a train. You know, like has to tease me about that. But being from New Zealand, I've never been on a plane before. So like finding my way around London, it's at King's Cross something to get over to Twickenham. I land at Twickenham train station. And I walk from Twickenham train station down to the ground, flip-flops, Bergen on, board shorts, long shaggy here. And I've got to where the security gate is. And I've gone, oh, I'm looking for the under-19s training camp. And they thought I was a tourist. Um, 
looking for like a stadium tour and they're like oh you know where are you from what do you want i'm like no no i'm, I'm a player and they're like really so they kind of ushered me along to spirit of rugby and um at 19 again and this is probably my own sort of um pride or or, or shortcomings you know i felt like an outsider one because i fucking looked completely different and uh I spoke completely different. I don't know if you've ever heard Tamana Harrison speak, but I would have been more like Tamana Harrison than I am now. And the the Volvos, the Range Rovers, the people like Hass probably in chinos and the blue blazer and the pale blue shirt, you know, with all with their county gears on. And I'm there, there with my fucking worldly positions in my backpack. And that was like my kind of first experience of, of that. And then I go on this trip and uh, went back to Worcester and never looked back. That's amazing, man. So many potential sliding doors moments. Do you reflect now? Do you take the time to say, do you know, actually, it's been a hell of a journey, but, uh, you know, well done, kid, and sort of pat yourself on the back? Have you yeah, had that conversation with yourself? Sometimes, because I, I, I try and... I try to do it with some of the, the younger guys that I, I kind of gravitated towards or gravitated to at Northampton, some of the younger guys, because, you know, they, they all see you as, a, as an international player, you know, at one, one point, I, I was lucky enough to, to have a Range Rover, but I'm fortunate enough to be sponsored by Mitsubishi now. Thank you, Mitzi. But they look at the Range Rover or the free car and they look at what they perceive to be success and they think it's always been like that. Like, fuck, I, when I moved to Northampton, I remember I lived in the estate next to the club and I was given a Muddy Fox bike with a flat tyre and I rode that f- thing for like a year with a flat tire because it was flat enough just to get me there and back. And I'd still catch the bus. I did even when I was 30 odd at Northampton to go into town, I'd, I'd go across the road and I'd catch the bus into town. And I think all the young players forget that you were once their age making it work with aspirations to, to climb. And I, I feel like a lot of them are probably in a bit of a rush to get a nice car. Actually, I, I had the shirt sponsor, uh, Mike Pell. He gave me a Renault Laguna. I was like, yeah, free car. It was like, I don't even know what reg it was, but it was old. But it had like um, a faulty locking system. So me and my brother who lived with me for a bit, we'd like drive into town. Or I remember one time we drove it to Sainsbury's to get our food shopping and the faulty lock fucked up. So it ended up staying at like Sainsbury's car park for like a fortnight. We had to walk home with our food. And then like every time or every three days we'd go back to Sainsbury's. And it never worked. And then one day it like unlocked again. So we had a car again. But we used to just walk everywhere. We used to bike everywhere. I mean, the Worcester days were funny as well. We were pretty thrifty because we actually didn't get money. Hass were like this. I used to like rob the robbers. So if I saw someone stealing something, a senior player's kit, I'd then rob that player. Then I'd eBay the kit. And then like, Worcester, in its earning the, power. Worcester had that, um, that conference center there. They've always had like great facilities. But we, we were getting paid like nothing, like fuel expenses. But we were required, this is like the Wild West of rugby back in 2005, we were required to be full-time players, but we weren't like contracted financially with anything. But if we didn't do it, someone else would have. So we, we'd play full-time rugby. We used to go into like their conference center. And I remember like robbing like trays of eggs. We used to like rob bog roll. We'd take like, I remember taking ham off the bone, like mini cheesecakes. We just, I mean, I'm you, not Was gonna... it you and Blazer? Was it you and Blazer, little and large? Yeah, I actually, I actually shared a student room with Richard Blaze, which was very snug. And like, even there, it was, it, was, it, was, it was summer holiday. So we, 
again, we were just thrifty. We went around like just raiding fridges at the uni and stuff like that. Just to, we weren't, we weren't doing it to be greedy. We were like, we were just getting by, you know, we're doing what we had to do. I can't imagine you do, but any regrets? Lions 2013, you know, is there anything that you think now, fuck, I wish I could play that card again or what's done is done and I'll take the Because I'll tell you why, like, um, I obviously understand the the gravitas that the Lions and the the honour that that carries. And it would have been good fun because I did get picked in the team. They fucking photoshopped my head off and they put besties on. I I got (laughs) on the photo and they actually photoshopped me out. Have you got the original just just as a one-off print? I'll be able to find it. Dave Rogers at Getty will be able to source it for me. I, I didn't grow up because I didn't even know who the Lions were because I, I grew up at, and at 16, you know, when was the last time the Lions toured to New Zealand before I'd left there? I, I can't even remember. You know, I would have been a kid, like really young. So I, well, I was in England then. Yeah, so, so you wouldn't have, you'd never have seen them then, yeah. No, so I, I didn't have that sort of, um, that dream or aspiration to to play for them. So, at the time, I was, I was pretty bummed out, but I, I was pretty, you know, what consumed me was the fact that Northampton had lost that final directly because of my actions or perceived actions. Is there, some, is there more in that? Yeah, read the book. That's the best chapter. <laughs> um, I was working commentary that game. I was working actually the, 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 the talk sport or, or doing something on that game. And, and obviously, we were teammates and friends. And I, I was like... I mean, I haven't read the part. I haven't got to that part in the book yet, so I don't know. But I was convinced that he didn't. Dylan wasn't talking to Stuart uh, Wayne Barnes at all. He was talking to opposition because why would you say the referees are cheating bastard when the fucking opposition scrum are, were, were cheating because they were trying to buy a penalty? And that, and I just, I still to this day don't understand why you think calling a referee a cheating bastard has got anything to do with the game. Because I don't understand. It's like I call. Oh, let's not, let's not do Chinese whispers. I didn't say that. Fine. Well, what did you say then? Whatever. Well, I, can't, I can't remember what you it's said. A, it's a family. It's a family show. So. Well, oh, fine. Family, whatever you left a long time ago, to be honest. Whatever, whatever, whatever you cheat. said. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I said. I said fucking cheat. But uh, like, if if we, I, I was so kind of um, beaten by again that media narrative of the naughty kid. Again, like I was never going to win that. You know, Wayne Barnes employed by the RFU. He was refereeing on the biggest stage in the, in the premier competition in, in England. And he was asked if there was any chance that it might not have been directed at him. And he said 100% it was directed at him. So it was basically subjective. I think um, the text says he saw me call him a fucking cheat. And at the time when I muttered fucking cheat at, I don't know, Tom Young's, Dan Cole, Leicester, the Derby, the whole situation he's actually looking away. So it's like, I, I actually rang Warren Gatlin and I was like, look, mate, I'm just, I'm a bit tired with it all. Like, I don't want to create this whole story and go down this um, this litigation or, or legal rugby court thing and then turn up to a tour in three weeks' time when you've already played three games. So it was just one of those ones, I remember bombing it out the back of, uh, of this Holiday Inn and um, wherever it was, and getting into the car where my wife was waiting for me. And I just thought, I don't really care. I'm tired. I'd played a lot of rugby that season. And if anything, any time I got injured, it was almost like I looked back as a blessing in disguise. It was a chance for me. It was almost made my own sabbaticals, you know? I remember one year, it was like premiership captain's launch. I'm like, what's the one thing you change about the season? I'm like, Christmas time, two weeks off. 
funny enough, I elbow Matt Smith in the bloody nose that, that Christmas. And I get eight weeks off, six weeks off, whatever it was. Silver linings and all that. I always thought that um, my forced kind of rest would, would give me longevity in my career. But the rugby gods have a, a funny way of playing things. But you did say that you lasted 97, 97 caps. You, you got to the top and you stayed there. And that's maybe, you know, maybe that's all you were meant to, to do. Because staying at the top and playing that consistently with that amount, you know, with that discipline record is still incredibly impressive. That's why I love, like, some noises. And I, I was never a glamorous player. I, I get that. But um, I can always take kind of great pride. And, you know, I would say Martin Johnson's a real good rugby man. Um, and I think... You know, Lanny has got a, a brilliant rugby brain and Eddie's like a, a combination of the both for, for three kind of managers or, or coaches to kind of back me for a decade and then rack up a few games for Northampton. Um, yeah, was, I'm pretty happy. Final question. We've got, we got our quick five questions in a moment or two. But given how you feel, are you glad it's all over now or are you sad it's all over? No, I'm, I'm happy. You know, like when, when I retired, I actually miss Haskell's retirement speech and for whatever reason you're supposed to do a speech and I'm in this auditorium and I fucking hated the auditorium the amount of times we'd rolled eyes at Jamie Gibson not coming to a social in that auditorium or rolled <laughs> eyes at like being in that auditorium there I am in the fucking auditorium saying that I'm finishing and I look over and there's a guy I don't even know in there he's like an intern that's turned up on his first day and I'm like who's this guy like I'm announcing a retirement to a guy I don't even know Look around the room like Tom Wood, Alex Waller, Connor Tupai, who's I've known since he was six. But I'm looking around, Courtney Laws, I'm like, where are my boys? Like, it's not those, those guys I kind of grew up with. And it's, this is where you are, just a, a cog in the, in the big machine. And, you know, you, you have a shelf life. And even, even retiring to that group of players just felt a bit weird because they weren't, you know, I didn't feel like I'd be part of that team because I'd been injured for about a year. Yeah. You'd said that you'd always taken... Um, retirement for granted like you, you know you said you missed mine but you, you saw it but you were like look you know congratulations move on but you it really struck home when, when it happened to you this is something that I think people with kids or have, or have been engaged or been married can probably relate to you know like pre having a kid if someone had a kid it was like shake your hand and say well done mate whereas now if someone has a kid I'm like wow that's amazing how are you you know like and you can really connect with that person Equally getting married or, or, or being engaged, people having those same experiences, you can really connect. And I think not until I've retired, I feel really bad to every player that I've potentially played with that's retired and I haven't given them that kind of attention or, or care that it probably needs. You're kind of caught up in the big machine, aren't you? Your life's good. You've got a three-year contract. You're doing well. You're playing for England. And you shake your hand and say, well, I make good career. Uh, but now I've done it. I, I appreciated the people that reached out to me, like Hask, people I hadn't played with in, in years that rung me, sent voice notes. Just um, it's quite an, an emotional time, I suppose, um, accepting or admitting to yourself that you can't compete anymore. You can't do what you, you know. So, yeah, like Jack Clifford the other day, like he would have been getting a lot of messages and I, I did send him a message, but I think, you know, someone like Jack who, you know, me and Hass socially probably don't really mix with Jack, but equally when we see Jack, it'll be great and he, he's, a, he's a lovely boy in that. But it's almost sort of one where you might throw yourself out there 
in a couple of months' time when things are quieting down and give them a ring and say, hey, you getting on type thing. Because it's all noisy when, when it's announced, but when you're trying to work it all out by yourself and you're, you're waking up at three in the morning going, fuck, what do I do now? I think that's when uh, a phone call or, you know, me, me and Hass probably see each other more now than when we did when we played, other than the changing room, you know. We never kind of, because you, you spend so much fucking time together. The last person you want to see is anyone from the club. Yeah, I get it. It's a very nice thing to hear. And it's, um, you know, you don't need me to tell you, it's been an extraordinary journey, Dylan. And I think, I hope that, that you will get the, the praise and the credit, you know, that you deserve. I think the charge sheet will hopefully become something that people... Hey, you're the one that keeps talking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm not the only one, but I, I hope that it will become, you know, part of your story, not the story. Do you know what I mean? The way that you finished is, is testament to... Everyone loves a comeback in sport. You know, look at Rocky, for Christ's sake. You know, and, and your, yours finishes on a high. I almost cried then. I, <laughs> I wasn't even that emotional. You're the best captain I worked with with, with England and... Um, I think it's really exciting for, to, to see what's happened. And I think it was interesting. We, we sat down the other day and I said, what, how are you finally about retirement? And you said uh, something quite poignant that is a sudden realisation that there's no fucking bloke riding over the hill to save you. You've now got to do, do everything you can do to be, to be successful and all the skills you put into place, I'm sure, when you play will, will help you. And uh, we'll have many more coffees and whinges and moans. I look forward to them and thank you very much for the kind words, both of you. You're not done yet. We've got our Bouillon de Couture. It's a shoot from the lip. Ten quick fire questions. What's your favourite word? Mate. Least favourite word? Free appearance. Uh, Simbin. There's two words, obviously. Red card. Any negative? Discipline. Discipline. Discipline's a good one. What's been your greatest moment in the game? The whole bloody thing. Like I said, 10 years of it. Worst moment? Northampton Premiership sending off. Favourite swear word? <laughs> I can't say it. Go on. You're not exactly an angel. Well, you can be a good one and you can be a bad one. Oh, yeah. It's the one word you can't really say. Uh, yeah. in, in New Zealand, though, it's part of normal parlance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Term of endearment. What noise or sound do you love? No noise. Silence. Trees. Birds. What noise or sound do you hate? Kids, echoes. Uh, what profession other than your own would you love to attempt? Ooh, I'm attempting coffee roasting at the moment, and that's going all right. Really? And horticulture. Wow. With a little bonsai tree? No. Or, or, no, okay. Something you can actually um, use. Oh, really? What, veg? 100%. It's not wasted then, is it? If you could do a road trip with three players, who'd be in the car? Chris Ashton, James Haskell, and... Big toops, so organised, the head honcho. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I, my daughter the other day was singing, uh, God created them all. She's obviously been learning, uh, learning new songs at school. And I was like, oh, uh, Thea, who's, who's God? She's only five. She was four when she said this. And um, she's like, God, Dad, he lives in the sky. I was like, oh, okay. And Dad, he's got a beard. And he has a son called Hercules. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. You can tell him that. Is God going to say, come on in? Or is he going to say, 10 minutes on the chair and I'll consider? He's going to say, you know, good things happen to good people, Alex. I believe that. Good on you. I hope you get out there. Um, final thing. Do you want a good, a bad or a rugby t-shirt to do your, um, your Saturday morning chores in? Good, please. He hath seen the light. 
Dylan Hartley, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. I hope your book flies. It absolutely deserves to. I hope your pod, when it comes out, is going to be fabulous and fantastic. It's been really, really good fun. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, Pano, you need to do one thing for me. You need to fill the Archie broken. He annoys the shit out of me. Okay. Uh, well, perhaps me you like... could do that. Perhaps you could do that for me because I think the two of us are in a bit of a bitch slap. Um, uh, he, I, he, as he came a after me. He came after me on Instagram early days when he was trying to build like a bit of a name for himself and like any like young punk, like he saw an easy, well, what he thought was an easy win with me. And I just thought like, this guy reminds me of like an academy player. And if he was in a real rugby environment, he'll be filled in and stuffed like in the, the bus toilet and not let out. He's disrespecting you, mate. You need to sort that out. Yeah, there's not a lot I can do about it. Well, I we don't want to hear that. Of course there is Pano. Fucking offer him out. Deal with Let's him. Stop with this fucking Pano shite. Um, <laughs> don't offer him out. Just fill him in when no one's looking. Oh, okay. Just do what they used to do. There used to be a guy in our, in our uh, change room, a guy called Robbie Shaw, and he used to, uh, every day they'd come in and they'd throw his bag onto a bin in the corridor and they wrote on the bin, Robbie Shaw's peg, every day for 365 days of the year for four years. He'd put his bag down, go through it, go, fuck off, Robbie, and it'd go straight into the land in this big bin with Robbie Shaw's peg on it. You've got to know where place. I feel really sorry for Robbie Shaw. I was doing that with Jamie Gibson's boat shoes for about... 18 months. I was chucking them in the lake because everyone hated his boat shoes. He used to go to the gym in boat shoes. I mean, Painter, I can imagine you going to the gym in boat shoes. But I'm more of a slip-on brogue, actually. But, uh, you know, a boat, sho- a boat shoe for a casual afternoon, perhaps. Good. And on that bombshell. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to Good, the Bad and the Rugby. Please subscribe on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Just type in Good, Bad, Rugby and leave us a review as well. Thank you to ask. Thank you to the great Dylan Hartley. Best of luck with all that comes your way and keep yourself well. Don't forget Tins Q&A on Friday. Questions in the Facebook group, Good, Bad and Rugby. And you'll be able to see the results across social media. We're heading to the land of the long white cloud next week for one of the game's great rock stars. Looking forward to that. See you in seven days' time. Over to you, Rob Bryden. From all of us, it's bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to the good, the bad and the rugby. It can't have been easy.